Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, suicide, and terrorism that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the evening of May 11, 1972, Soldiers at the United States Army headquarters in Frankfurt, Germany, were just sitting down to begin dinner with their families. And then the bomb exploded. Panic ensued as the soldiers tried to flee to safety. But before anyone could get their bearings... A second bomb went off outside the officers' club. A U.S. Army colonel died in the blast, and 13 people were injured. But the terrorists responsible for the attack were just getting started. Within two weeks, their string of bombings would kill three and injure 28 people. The world was shocked to learn the identity of the woman leading these terrorists. She was a famous journalist, a screenwriter, and a mother of two girls. But by May 11, 1972, Ulrika Meinhof was a killer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, but what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Claire. You're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we continue our investigation of Ulrika Meinhof, a German journalist who formed a terrorist organization to strike back against capitalist Western governments. But before we dive into Ulrika's life, we'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
Ulrika Meinhof was a radical communist who co-founded the terrorist organization known as the Red Army Faction, or RAF, in 1970. She operated for two years in Western Germany and led her fellow terrorists in a series of bank robberies, kidnappings, and bombings until her capture in 1972. In our first episode, we did a deep dive into Ulrika's early life. She was born in Oldenburg, Germany on October 7, 1934, right before the start of World War II, but she was mostly sheltered from the war's devastating consequences. As a college student and aspiring journalist, she fell in love with a fellow writer, Klaus Reiner Rull. The pair had two little girls and worked together on a communist newspaper, Concrete. But after brain surgery to remove a malignant tumor in 1962, 27-year-old Ulrika underwent a drastic personality change. She divorced Rull and grew increasingly extreme in her communist views. In 1970, she abandoned her successful journalism career to help a fellow communist agitator, Andreas Bader, escape from prison. Today, we'll dive deeper into Ulrika's evolution from pacifist journalist to terrorist and murderer. We'll examine how her criminal activities escalated from bank robberies to terrorist bombings. And we'll uncover the mistakes she made that led to her capture in 1972. After helping Andreas Bader escape from prison on May 14, 1970, Ulrika went on the run with the other five terrorist members of the RAF. Her stunning transformation from famous writer to criminal was due at least partially to her environment. She surrounded herself with other terrorists who encouraged her radical views. Vanessa's going to take over the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Claire. According to psychiatrist Mark Van Vogt, quote, Social psychological research shows that groups of people often take riskier decisions than individual group members. This phenomenon is called group polarization, or the risky shift. It lies at the root of radicalization because it explains how people can develop more extreme views, for example, regarding the use of violence in conflicts." End quote. In other words, the more time that Ulrika spent in the company of other terrorists, the more radicalized and violent her views became. But Ulrika couldn't plot terrorist activities with her seven-year-old twins Bettina and Regina in tow. So she handed over her daughters to a trusted friend in Sicily to hide them from her ex-husband, Klaus Rall. Ulrika was also no longer able to maintain her career as a journalist now that she was in hiding in Germany, but she still wanted to write. Ulrika began penning propaganda for the RAF. In June of 1970, the RAF released their first public statement. It read, quote, The revolution will not be an Easter parade. Let the class struggle unfold. Let the proletariat organize. Let the armed resistance begin. Build up the Red Army, end quote. This was just the first of many propaganda pieces that the RAF published in left-wing newspapers. There was no author credited on any of these letters, but it's generally believed that Ulrika wrote most of them. 
In June 1970, Ulrika and the other RAF members traveled to Jordan, where they started training with the Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine. The PFLP is a terrorist organization that advocates for the destruction of Israel and the creation of a communist Palestinian government. By 1970, they were already infamous for hijacking several international flights and murdering two young students in the Jerusalem supermarket bombing. The PFLP sometimes coordinated with other communist terrorist groups, like the Japanese Red Army. We don't know how the RAF got in touch with the PFLP, but by 1970, they had received an offer from the Palestinians to train in terrorism tactics. Ulrika and the other five members of the RAF were happy to accept the offer. They traveled to Jordan in June of 1970 to learn how to handle firearms, make bombs, organize bank robberies, and make a fast getaway. According to the book Hitler's Children, the story of the Bader-Meinhof gang, Ulrika said that, quote, learning how to lift weights and fall out of a fast-moving car was much more fun than sitting at a typewriter, end quote. But while Ulrika enjoyed her training at the Palestinian camp, she and the other members of the RAF soon found it difficult to get along with the Palestinian terrorists. The Palestinians felt the Germans were too liberal, while the RAF members resented the conservative culture of the PFLP. Ulrika was also having trouble with her personal life. After reaching Jordan in June of 1970, she initially planned to bring her young daughters out from hiding in Sicily to join her, but she made the mistake of confiding her plans to her friend Peter Holman, who had also traveled to Jordan for terrorism training. When Holman learned that Ulrika was planning to bring her seven-year-old girls to Jordan, he apparently feared that Ulrika was planning to train them as terrorists. Holman and Ulrika may have supported the same communist cause, but Holman clearly felt that involving children was crossing a line. Holman soon returned to Germany in 1970, where he learned that his former roommate, Stefan Aust, was writing a piece about Ulrika for a German television show. Holman told Aust about Ulrika's plans to take her daughters to a Palestinian orphanage in Jordan. Aust was good friends with Ulrika's ex-husband, Klaus Rall, and he quickly warned Rall about Ulrika's plan. Aust and Rall managed to recover the girls from their hiding place in Sicily before Ulrika could bring them to Jordan. In September of 1970, the Palestinians kicked Ulrika and the other Germans out of their terrorism training camp. Ulrika returned to Germany, where she was furious to learn that the twins were now living with her ex-husband. As a terrorist on the run from the authorities, Ulrika couldn't exactly turn to the police or the court system to recover her children. She was likely left feeling desperate. According to social work professor Edward Crook, parents who are separated or alienated from their children often feel profoundly isolated and helpless. Since Ulrika couldn't get her girls back from Rull, she decided to settle for revenge. In the fall of 1970, Ulrika ordered an RAF member to kill Stefan Aust for his role in helping her ex-husband find the twins. We can see just how radicalized and violent Ulrika had become. By the fall of 1970, she was already willing to murder people who stood in her way or betrayed her. An RAF member traveled to Aust's home, 
but he wasn't sure he could bring himself to follow Ulrika's order. Aust was a communist himself, and the RAF member didn't like the idea of assassinating a fellow member of the cause. As he approached Aust's home, the RAF member had an important decision to make. Should he go against his conscience and kill Aust? Or should he let Aust live and return empty-handed to face his murderous leader, Ulrika Meinhof? We'll return to our story in just a moment. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now, back to female criminals. In the fall of 1970, Ulrika Meinhof was enraged when the television writer Stefan Aust helped her ex-husband Rull locate and gain custody of her young daughters. She ordered a member of the RAF terrorist organization to go to Aust's house and kill him. The RAF member went to Aust's home, but he couldn't bring himself to kill Aust. He convinced Aust to run away, then lied to Ulrika and told her that he wasn't home. This setback was apparently enough to persuade Ulrika to give up on her desire for revenge against Aust and Roll. But Roll was still so afraid of his wife that he requested police surveillance. He needn't have bothered. By September of 1970, Ulrika had shifted her focus back to her terrorist activities. On September 29th, Ulrika and the other RAF members organized three simultaneous robberies. Ulrika led one robbery team, while Bader, the terrorist she had rescued from prison, led another. Ulrika was embarrassed when Bader's team stole nearly seven times more money than her team. According to the book, Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, quote, Ulrika overlooked a container with 100,000 marks, for which she was criticized and ridiculed by the group, end quote. Despite Ulrika's enthusiasm for her cause, she was a terrible criminal mastermind, and everyone in the RAF knew it. They let Ulrika believe that she was the leader of the terrorist group, but Bader and his girlfriend, Gudrun Enslin, were really the ones running things. Bader and the other RAF members apparently thought so little of Ulrika that they considered kicking her out of the group altogether. But Ulrika had valuable connections, and the other RAF members didn't want to lose their access to Ulrika's network. So instead of forcing Ulrika out of the group, they redirected her energies away from bank robbing and towards other tasks that they felt she was better suited for. A month later, in October of 1970, German police learned that an RAF member named Ingrid Schubert was involved in Bader's prison break earlier that year. They searched her home in Berlin, and according to the book Hitler's Children, they found, quote, a Spanish pistol, some detonators, chemicals, crow's feet, spiked devices made from metal piping that could be thrown to puncture car tires, stolen license plates, and notes on the September 29th bank robberies and how the money had been distributed, end quote. 
By chance, three other RAF members stopped by Ingrid's home to visit her during the police raid. The police were able to arrest them, along with Ingrid, for their terrorist activities. Ulrika was able to evade capture. She hid from police in West Germany with fellow RAF member Karl Heinz Ruland and went by the code names Anna and Rana to avoid detection. As Ruland and Ulrika looked for a new safe house in the fall of 1970, they became romantically involved. Ruland quickly let his new status as Ulrika's boyfriend go to his head. He began ignoring her orders and bossing her around. Ulrika didn't really care. She was confident in her position as the group's leader and mostly ignored Ruland's attempts to undermine her. As Ulrika and Ruland continued to scout for safe houses in the fall of 1970, they stole stamps, ID cards, and passports from a municipal office in Neudstadt am Rubenberg, West Germany. The RAF members in Berlin were thrilled that Ulrika had managed to steal such crucial documents. They sent her a coded message with the address where they needed her to send the ID cards and passports. But once again, Ulrika proved that she didn't make the best criminal. She decoded the message improperly and sent the passports to the wrong address. The RAF members in Berlin were furious at Ulrika's incompetence, but they still couldn't afford to lose such a passionate, well-connected member. So they reluctantly let Ulrika remain in the RAF. In the fall of 1970, Ulrika and Ruland tried and failed several times to procure weapons for the RAF. Another RAF member, Jan Karl Rasp, joined Ulrika and Ruland that fall to help them arm the group. Rasp and Ulrika hit it off immediately. They began disappearing on day-long missions, leaving Ruland behind to stew. Ulrika moved into Rasp's room, and it's likely the two began sleeping together. Unsurprisingly, Ruland grew jealous of Ulrika's new lover. Ruland was so upset at Ulrika's and Rasp's relationship that he wanted to leave the RAF. But Ulrika either convinced him or coerced him into staying with the group. She may have even threatened to kill Ruland if he left. We know she was willing to murder other communists like Aust who betrayed or displeased her. After Ulrika dealt with Ruland's attempted defection, she and Rasp were able to focus on a new weapons deal. Together, Rasp and Ulrika purchased 23 guns from the Palestinian terrorist organization they had trained with in Jordan. After purchasing firearms in the fall of 1970, Ulrika always made sure to carry a gun on her person. She was now armed and dangerous. In December 1970, Ulrika Meinhof reunited with the other RAF members and moved into one of their safe houses in Frankfurt. They had around 30 members at this point, and there were too many people to fit in the Frankfurt house, so they decided to move into an old sanatorium. However, the sanatorium didn't quite live up to their expectations. The building was chilly, even with the heaters on at full blast. Ulrika and the other two RAF leaders, Bader and Enslin, decided they would get to live at the Frankfurt House while it underwent renovations. Ulrika forced her old lover, Ruland, to make the repairs to the sanatorium. Perhaps Ulrika was punishing him for threatening to leave the group, or maybe she really did resent those times he ignored her orders or tried to undermine her authority. 
Ruland wasn't happy that he was the one forced to work on the sanatorium, while Ulrika and the other leaders got to live comfortably in the Frankfurt house. And perhaps his resentment made him careless. On December 20th, 1970, Ruland went out on a mission with three other RAF members to steal cars for the group. Police stopped them and noticed that something was wrong with Ruland's forged papers. Ruland urged the other three members to run and turned himself in. Ulrika wasn't particularly phased by Ruland's arrest, and she continued to plot bank robberies with Botter. Botter also came up with a plan to kidnap the Chancellor, but Ulrika thought this was a dumb idea. And this wasn't the only thing the two disagreed on. By late December 1970, Ulrika and Botter were constantly butting heads. With the exception of his girlfriend, Enslin, Botter treated the women in the RAF with sexist contempt. He verbally berated and abused Ulrika and the other women in the group. Ulrika couldn't have been happy that Botter, the man who she had freed from prison earlier that year, was treating her so badly. And perhaps the infighting in the group was what caused them all to make reckless mistakes. In late December 1970, Ulrika and Rasp were pulled over for speeding. They handed over their papers to the police, then zoomed off in the car before the cops could figure out that they had pulled over wanted terrorists. But now that the police had Ulrika's papers, this meant that they also had an updated photo of her. They previously thought Ulrika had mid-length brown hair, but in December of 1970, they realized that Ulrika had actually cut her hair short and dyed it blonde. With the police having an updated photo, this put more pressure on Ulrika and the other RAF members to stay hidden, but they weren't able to evade police for long. Their 30-member group rapidly dwindled in the early months of 1971, as police caught and arrested almost everyone. By May of 1971, there were only eight members of the RAF remaining, including Botter, Enslin, and Ulrika. But Ulrika wasn't going to let the intensifying police investigation stop her from spreading her ideology. After months of hiding and lying low, Ulrika felt inspired to publish a new manifesto called The Urban Guerrilla Concept. In the manifesto, Ulrika wrote, quote, It is clear that the massive hunt for us is really directed against the entire socialist left in the Federal Republic and West Berlin. This circus cannot be justified by the small amount of money or the few cars and documents we are alleged to have stolen, or by the attempted murder they're trying to pin on us. The ruling class has been scared out of its skin." End quote. According to the book Hitler's Children, Ulrika's writing was, quote, emotional, immoderate, and at times incoherent, end quote. According to the New Manifesto, the RAF's goals were to, quote, urge violence as the only means to change society, reject legal means of achieving changes in society, and reject parliamentarianism. They claimed they weren't anarchists, they were communists. They lauded Maoism and scorned pluralistic society and praised armed struggle against American imperialism, end quote. Despite her obvious psychological instability, Ulrika was still a persuasive and powerful writer, and she initially managed to win the support of the German public. According to Everybody Talks, quote, 
one in four Germans under the age of 30 expressed certain sympathies for the RAF. One in 20 German citizens declared a willingness to harbor an RAF member for a night, end quote. Remember that this young generation of Germans had grown up with Hitler's fascist government in power. It must have seemed attractive to embrace a polar opposite political philosophy like communism. And in May of 1971, RAF members were still able to portray themselves as underdogs that the Germans could root for. After all, they hadn't killed or injured anyone yet. Even their bank robberies had been bloodless. It's easy to see why Germans might have embraced the RAF as a sort of Robin Hood-esque group, stealing from rich people and supporting the poor. But the police knew that the RAF was dangerous. After Ulrika released the manifesto in May of 1971, the police arrested not just known RAF members, but RAF supporters. They were afraid that Ulrika was going to be able to recruit new members into her organization. In 1971, 36-year-old Ulrika became the focus of a lot of sensational reporting. According to Everybody Talks, Ulrika was usually portrayed as either, quote, a desexualized crusader, a tragically misguided Joan of Arc, or a highly eroticized seductress who took and dismissed lovers and incited young men and women to violence, end quote. In November 1971, Ulrika's own foster mother, Renata Remick, published an influential condemnation of her daughter. Her open letter to Ulrika was entitled, Give Up, Ulrika. Remick expressed her horror at Ulrika's behavior and begged her to abandon her criminal activities. She also warned Ulrika that her terrorism would eventually turn people against her cause. It's often deeply distressing for parents when their children turn to crime, especially since they receive a share of the blame for their children's actions. Psychology lecturer Andrew Solomon notes in his book, Far From the Tree, that society often unfairly believes that a criminal's parents are always to blame for the child's choices. Remick was a pacifist socialist who believed in peace, nonviolent protest, and equality. She was distressed by Ulrika's descent into crime and terrorism, and this open letter was clearly a desperate attempt to open her foster daughter's eyes. But Ulrika wasn't swayed in the slightest by Remick's letter. Throughout 1971 and into 1972, Ulrika continued robbing banks and plotting new terrorist attacks. But in early 1972, Bader and Ulrika decided to part ways. They were still officially members of the same group, but they could no longer stand to work side by side. Ulrika went to North Germany and Bader moved to Southern Germany. But even though they were in separate parts of the country, Ulrika and Bader were still working together to prepare for a terrorist attack that they nicknamed the May Offensive. Their plan was to commit a series of bombings to protest capitalism, American imperialism, and the Vietnam War. And Ulrika and Bader were quickly able to recruit new members to help them with the bombings. By May of 1972, the terrorist group was once again 30 members strong, and with the help of her new members, Ulrika was ready to start the bombings. Ulrika had made death threats before. 
but now she was finally ready to kill. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to the story. In May of 1972, Ulrika Meinhof transformed from bank robber to terrorist and murderer. She planned a series of deadly bombings called the May Offensive to protest capitalism and the Vietnam War. The first occurred on May 11th. RAF members set off two bombs at the United States Army headquarters in Frankfurt, West Germany. Thirteen people were injured, and an Army colonel was killed. The RAF committed another bombing attack just one day later. On May 12, 1972, three bombs exploded inside the police headquarters in Augsburg, West Germany. No one died, but ten people were injured. Two days later, on May 14th, the RAF released an announcement claiming responsibility for the bombings. The RAF claimed that the Augsburg police headquarters bombing was revenge for the death of a man named Thomas Weisbecker, who had been killed by police in March 1972. The RAF demanded the public, quote, resist the SS practices of the police, end quote. We can see here how Ulrika and the RAF are still trying to win over the public by contrasting themselves with the fascist Nazi regime. That said, they continued carrying out bombings, which was not a great way to win over the public. On May 15th, the RAF targeted a judge on the federal Supreme Court who had convicted former RAF members. One RAF member planted a bomb in the judge's car with the intention of killing him and his family, but the bomb merely injured the judge's wife. The RAF admitted responsibility and released a statement that read, quote, we will carry out bomb attacks against judges and federal prosecutors until they stop violating the rights of political prisoners, end quote. The RAF was now a fully-fledged terrorist group. The FBI currently defines terrorism as, quote, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims, end quote. According to social psychologists Stephen D. Riker and S. Alexander Haslam, the majority of terrorists are, quote, ordinary people shaped by group dynamics to do harm in the name of a cause they find noble and just, end quote. We can see that here with Ulrika. She slowly transformed from a journalist writing about causes she believed in to someone willing to kill innocent people. And Ulrika didn't stop. On May 19, 1972, Ulrika ordered RAF members to plant four bombs in the bathrooms of the Springer Company's building in Hamburg, Germany. Ulrika had held a grudge against the right-wing newspapers owned by the Springer Company since her journalism days, and she considered this a legitimate way of getting back at them. She clearly did not care that innocent writers might die in her attack. Luckily, only one of the four bombs went off at the Springer Company. Seventeen people were injured, but no one died. The RAF put out an announcement after the May 19th bombing claiming responsibility for the attack. They also threatened the Springer Company with future bombings. The announcement said, in part, quote, Our demands of Springer, 
that his newspaper stopped the anti-communist hysteria against the new left. We will stop our attacks on the enemies of the people if our demands are met." End quote. But instead of bombing the Springer Company again, Ulrika decided to launch another attack against the U.S. military. On May 24th, RAF members attached stolen USA license plates to several cars with bombs hidden inside. They drove the cars to the U.S. Army headquarters in Heidelberg, Germany. Their stolen license plates allowed them to get into the base without raising the guards' suspicions. RAF members parked their cars in strategic locations at the base, where they hoped they could kill the most people. They parked one of their cars outside Campbell Barracks, next to the brand new car of a young U.S. soldier named Clyde Bonner. With the bombs almost ready to go off, the RAF members fled. Unaware of the danger, Clyde Bonner stepped outside the barracks with his fellow soldier Ronald Woodward so they could admire his new car. They didn't notice the bomb in the RAF car parked next to Clyde's until it exploded. Clyde and Ronald were killed instantly. Charles Park, a U.S. soldier in a nearby building, also died in the blast. Another car bomb exploded simultaneously, injuring several more people. These May 24th bombings didn't win over the German public, as the RAF had hoped. Instead, Germans were furious that the RAF had murdered more soldiers and threatened the lives of the children and innocent visitors on the base. In one fell swoop, Ulrika lost most of her public support. Almost everyone in Germany, even her former supporters, now turned against her. One week later, on June 1, 1972, police cornered Bader, Ulrika's former lover Rasp, and a third RAF member named Holger Mainz outside an apartment. Rasp pulled out a gun and fired wildly at the police, but he was quickly subdued and arrested. Bader and Mainz hid in a garage for hours until police gassed them out. Mainz surrendered quietly, but police had to drag Bader kicking and screaming out of the garage. Bader's girlfriend and fellow RAF leader Gudrun Enslin tried to keep up her normal routine even after Bader's arrest. A week later, on June 8th, she even went out shopping. While Enslin was trying on sweaters, one of the store's employees picked up her coat and discovered a pistol in the coat pocket. The employee called the police, and Enslin was arrested. Ulrika was now the only RAF leader left. With the police closing in, Ulrika was desperate for a safe place to hide. On June 15, 1972, Ulrika reached out to Fritz Rodewald, a friendly acquaintance sympathetic to her cause. She asked Rodewald if he would hide her for the night, and Rodewald agreed to shelter her. But what Ulrika didn't know was that Rodewald believed Ulrika's terrorism was harming the leftist movement. As soon as Ulrika arrived and settled into his home, Rodewald called the police. The police couldn't be sure of Ulrika's identity when they arrested her, since she was going by a different name. Lucky for them, Ulrika was carrying around a magazine article about her life when she was arrested. The article included information about Ulrika's brain surgery, and it featured an X-ray picture of her head that showed the doctor's clamps in her brain. 
the police decided to x-ray Ulrika's head to see if she had those same clamps in her brain. The x-ray definitely proved that they had arrested Ulrika Meinhof. In 1972, 37-year-old Ulrika Meinhof was taken to the Ossendorf prison in Cologne, West Germany. She awaited trial for four murders, 34 attempted murders, three bombings, her criminal involvement in Andres Bader's prison break, and multiple bank robberies and terrorist activities. German authorities knew that Ulrika and the other RAF leaders, Bader and Enslin, were incredibly persuasive. They feared the RAF leaders might easily sway other prisoners to their cause, so they kept Ulrika and the other two leaders in solitary confinement. This stint in solitary had a devastating psychological effect on Ulrika. According to a study done by social psychologist Craig Haney, prisoners who had spent long periods of time in solitary confinement reported they, quote, consistently felt on the verge of an impending breakdown and felt chronically depressed, end quote. For people with psychological disorders, isolation can make these disorders worse. Haney also found that in Texas prisoners, quote, suicide rates for those in solitary confinement are five times higher than that of the general prison community, end quote. In 1973, Ulrika wrote about the harmful psychological consequences of solitary confinement, describing it as, quote, the feeling your brain is gradually shriveling up like baked fruit, the feeling you're completely and surreptitiously wired under remote control, the feeling the associations you make are being hacked away, raging aggression for which there is no outlet. That's the worst the clear awareness that you don't have a hope of surviving, the utter failure to communicate that, end quote. Though they were both in isolated cells, Ulrika quickly realized that she was in the same prison as Enslin. They tried to communicate with letters through their shared lawyer, Otto Schilly. But Schilly was quickly caught and investigated for helping the women exchange letters. So for an entire year, from May 1973 to February 1974, Enslin and Ulrika organized hunger strikes to protest the investigation. Prisoners have used hunger strikes as a form of political protest for centuries. Mahatma Gandhi, the Irish Republican Army, and British and American suffragettes all utilized hunger strikes to protest their imprisonment. Of course, starving yourself has psychological consequences. The first psychological study on starvation was done by physiologist Ansel Keyes in 1944. Keyes wanted to study the starvation and hardships World War II soldiers were dealing with overseas. He found that starving people undergo psychological changes that include fatigue, irritability, depression, and apathy. Ulrika was already feeling on edge after a year in solitary confinement. Her hunger strikes likely worsened any feelings of anxiety or depression. In April 1974, Ulrika, Enslin, and Bader were transferred to Stamheim Prison in Baden-Württemberg, West Germany. The authorities were worried that the RAF members might bomb the prison, so they renovated a wing to make it strong enough to withstand a bombing attack. 
They also hired armed guards and bomb-sniffing dogs, specifically to watch Ulrika and the other RAF leaders. On the plus side, Ulrika was allowed out of solitary confinement. For the first time in two years, she was able to interact with other human beings on a regular basis. But this wasn't enough to mollify Ulrika, and she kept up her political protests. In September 1974, Ulrika and the other RAF leaders went on another hunger strike and published a list of their demands. According to Hitler's children, these demands included, quote, free self-organization, payment on par with free people who were doing the same jobs, the right to strike, free choice of doctors, self-administration through elections, unrestricted visiting without guards, freedom of assembly, sexual contact outside working hours, and mixed-sex institutions, end quote. They received none of these things. Instead, in September 1974, Ulrika was transferred to Moabit Prison in Berlin. A month later in November, 40-year-old Ulrika was sentenced to eight years in prison for helping free Bader from prison back in 1970. Around this time in 1974, Ulrika cut off all communication with her daughters and other family members. We don't know exactly why she did this, but perhaps she sensed how traumatic it was for her children to have a mother in prison. Maybe severing ties was her way of protecting them. Or perhaps depression brought on by solitary confinement and hunger strikes led her to isolate herself. After cutting off her family, Ulrika only had the other imprisoned RAF members to lean on. But the other RAF members were starting to suffer deadly consequences for their hunger strikes. In November of 1974, RAF member Holger Mines died of starvation. He weighed 88 pounds at his time of death. According to Everybody Talks, a photo of the emaciated Mines, quote, conjured up associations with concentration camp victims. With resonances of fascism palatable, Mines' death brought about a wave of outrage toward the state that had allowed this to happen, end quote. The imprisoned RAF leaders attempted to present a unified front to capitalize on this renewed public support. But in reality, they were once again having trouble getting along. In the winter of 1974, Ulrika had a falling out with the other RAF members. We don't know what led to it, but we do know that Bader and Ulrika had struggled to get along for years. Maybe Bader finally convinced the rest of the group to cut ties with Ulrika. This likely left Ulrika once again feeling completely isolated and alone. But even though Ulrika was no longer speaking to the other RAF members, she still had to go to court with them. On May 21st, 1975, Ulrika, Bader, Enslin, and Rasp went on trial for their terrorist activities. According to Everybody Talks, quote, the prison and the courtroom were secured like a fortress with armed police and a steel net over the courtyard to foil any attempt to free the prisoners by helicopter, end quote. During the trial, Ulrika and the other RAF leaders shouted obscenities, insulted the judge, staged walkouts, insulted their own defense attorneys, and sometimes didn't even show up to court. Thanks in part to their antics, the trial dragged on for 192 days, 
over half a year. Ulrika wanted the group to maintain their innocence and deny any responsibility for the bombings, but the other leaders weren't interested in cooperating with her. None of them could stand her anymore, particularly Gudrun Enslin. Enslin said of Ulrika, quote, You are the knife in the back of the RAF. The problem is that you and the others have now become a burden. You're appallingly disoriented pigs. You're the one destroying us, something the law could never do, end quote. Ulrika had given up her career, her children, and her freedom to be a member of the RAF, and now her own RAF comrades were shunning her. This must have been devastating. According to a study on ostracism by Purdue psychology professors Kipling Williams and Steve Nida, ostracization can result in depression and a loss of self-esteem. The brain even processes ostracism as though it's physical pain. As Ulrika struggled to cope with her ostracization, she received another blow. On May 4, 1976, Enslin defied Ulrika's plan to maintain their innocence and confessed that the RAF committed the May offensive bombings. Ulrika, Bader, Enslin, and Rasp were all sentenced to life in prison for their crimes. 41-year-old Ulrika had now lost everything. She had no family, no friends, and no hope of ever achieving her freedom. On May 8th, four days after receiving her life sentence, Ulrika hung herself in her prison cell. She didn't leave a suicide note, and her death has been shrouded in mystery ever since. Some believe Ulrika chose to commit suicide on May 8th as a symbolic act. May 8th was both Mother's Day and the 31st anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe. Perhaps Ulrika was trying to remind the world that she was a mother who couldn't live without her two daughters. Or perhaps she was trying to offer a symbolic warning about the dangers of Germany's Nazi regime. Some, including Ulrika's sister Vinka, believe that Ulrika was actually murdered by the government with her death staged as a suicide. Others believe that prison officials pushed her to suicide, and some blame her death on her fellow RAF members for ostracizing and isolating her. Ulrika was buried in West Berlin six days after her death on May 14, 1976. Roughly 4,000 people attended the funeral, but Ulrika's foster mother and her 13-year-old daughters were not in attendance. But the RAF didn't die with Ulrika. In 1977, an RAF splinter group that called itself Commando Ulrika Meinhof committed murders in her name. They even hijacked a plane in October of 1977 in an attempt to get Bader, Enslin, and Rasp released from prison. The RAF's hijacking failed to get the three leaders released. And on October 18, 1977, Bader, Enslin, and Rasp were found dead in their prison cells. Bader and Rasp died of gunshot wounds to the head. Enslin was found hanged to death. The authorities claimed that the three had a suicide pact, but their deaths birthed even more conspiracy theories about government assassinations. A fourth RAF member, Ermgard Muller, was found with stab wounds in her chest, but she survived. 
Authorities believed that Mueller was also part of the suicide pact, but Mueller insisted that she wasn't trying to kill herself. She claimed someone attacked her. Regardless, Mueller recovered from the stabbing, and over two decades later, in 1994, she was finally released from prison. She was given a life sentence plus 15 years for killing three American soldiers in an car bomb attack on U.S. Army headquarters in Heidelberg 22 years ago. She was freed today after 22 years in jail. She was the longest held female prisoner in Germany. In 1997, Ulrika was back in the news once again. After Ulrika's death in 1976, her brain had been illegally sent to Tübingen University. Doctors then spent the next 20 years studying it. Pathologist Jürgen Pfeiffer initially examined Ulrika's brain and found that the right side of her brain had been damaged during her brain surgery. And in 1997, doctors at Madgeburg University suggested that Ulrika's brain damage was so extensive that she may not have been fit to stand trial. Brain damage can affect your personality, your judgment, your impulse control, and even your ability to feel guilt. If Ulrika suffered from extensive brain damage, this may help explain why she suddenly transformed from upstanding journalist to remorseless killer. Ulrika's daughter, journalist Bettina Roll, was finally able to get her mother's brain back and bury it with Ulrika's body in 2002. It's unclear what trajectory Ulrika's life would have taken if she had never needed that brain surgery perhaps she would have continued writing rather than turning to crime. But instead, Ulrika Meinhof went from being one of Germany's first female journalists to one of Germany's first female terrorists. As a young woman, she was a proponent of peace, but she gave up her career, her family, and her future to become a killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 